Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Dr. Robert Granger. Before we go any further, let's have an additional word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for being who you are, that you've called us to be your people, and you're inviting us into a deeper experience with you today. Lord, I just ask that you'll allow the Spirit to open up to us these passages of Scripture that we will understand and be moved and blessed by them. I pray in your name. Amen. I admit that there are many themes in, uh, in Scripture that, that do challenge me, as no doubt they would to you as well. And one of those themes that we find running throughout Scripture, and it seems to be probably a little bit more evident in the Old Testament, is that of where we see uh, God's people repeatedly rebelling against him despite the most obvious and visible of divine manifestations. It's just always intrigued me, how could that be? How could people every day be receiving manna? How could they see the, the pillar of fire at night, the cloud by day, and not know that we're dealing with the obvious and very visible and actual presence of God? To witness miracle after miracle, to see the hand of God in such an obvious way, and yet from leadership downwards, there was like this, this yo-yo experience with God. Now, am I telling my age when I'm talking about yo-yos? Do they still have yo-yos these days? Yeah. I must admit, I haven't seen any for a long time. I, I used to remember, I, I had one, and, and, I, and I hate to be an advertisement of such bad things, but mine was a Coca-Cola one. It was a red one. Do you remember those ones? It was like, and then they had a Fanta one, which was like a blue one. And you used to do all these fancy tricks. You'd you know, throw it down, and then you'd do the spin it down, and and then you'd let it grab onto the, onto the floor and you'd do a walk the dog. You remember that? And you'd flick it and it'd come back up into your palm. Down, up, down, up. Rebellion, reformation, rebellion, reformation. This just seemed to be the history of God's people. And then I came across this verse in Ecclesiastes. And... You know how it is at night time, thick night, you know, like we're, we've got a new moon happening tonight, so there's no moon to be seen. It's going to be dark, and you step out there in the darkness, and, and you're like groping around through the bushes, and you, you, can't, you can't quite work out, and then all of a sudden a spotlight turns on. It was like that with me and this verse. A spotlight turned on. It was just an amazing thing where all of a sudden I gained insights like I'd never before gained insights into the behavior of God's people back then, but more particularly, it gave insights and explained so much about myself. And that was the scary part. And I realized that God wants me to have this steady, uncompromising relationship with him, not this up-down, up-down sort of an experience. 
Now, I want to be clear when I go through, because what we're going to be doing this morning is pondering on this verse. And yet, I, I, I want us to be clear about one thing, and that is, I, I'm not at all suggesting that there is only going to be one reason why we fall into sin. That there's only one reason why we turn our backs on God. I don't want to give that impression at all, because that's not the case. So I do not want to oversimplify. I don't want to overstate uh, the importance of this verse. And yet, it is a verse that's relevant to everyone in every circumstance, doesn't matter if you're Christian, non-Christian, male, female, young, old, doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, this verse, in fact, has relevance, and you're going to see that. I hope you will see that. Because it contains this profound truth that we can only ignore at our peril. So if you've got your swords there with you, please open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. So if you have it electronically or you have a print form of the Bible, please turn there with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. And uh, in my haste uh, this morning to come here, I omitted to bring my spectacles, but um, I will stand back a foot or two. This is what it says, and for those who need a screen, thank you, Angela, that will work well. Um, it's up here. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And as we read through the stories of the kings of Judah and of Israel, it's sobering to see both leadership as well as people having this yo-yo experience with God, and I wonder why. And I look at this verse and I start to appreciate it. I came across a statement a couple of years ago in, in a flight safety magazine. Single sentence that, that really impacted me. It was just, it's a profound thought. Throw it up here on the board, and here it is. It said this the only way to feel safe is never to feel secure. And I thought, what's that all about? Until I read further in the article, where one of the biggest killers in, uh, in, in aviation is something, and it's a word that starts with C. Ah, did I hear it? Go again. Someone said it. I thought I heard someone say complacency. I thought I did. That's exactly it complacency. I'm fine. I don't need to learn anything more. I don't need to look out. I don't need to prepare for emergencies because emergencies never happen to me. And I become complacent. Complacency, a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. And you know, this is exactly what happened to the children of Israel. I'm going to be sharing a number of statements this morning from the spirit of prophecy, for which I make absolutely no apology, because I learn a lot from, from, from our modern prophet. Take a look at this here. This is what she said about the children of Israel. It was when the Israelites were in a condition of outward ease and security, that is, complacency, they were led into sin. David, King David, had this problem. The work of the enemy is not abrupt. 
It is not at the outset sudden and startling. It is a secret undermining of the strongholds of principle. It begins in apparently small things. The neglect to be true to God and to rely upon him wholly, the disposition to follow the customs and practices of the world. And it was now while David was at ease and unguarded that David was complacent that the tempter seized the opportunity to occupy his mind when David was ease, when in ease and self-security, when David was complacent, he let go his hold upon God. And David yielded to Satan and brought upon his soul the stain of guilt. And that is in reference to his sin with Bathsheba. Daniel and his companions... On the other hand, when they were put to the test with regards to their diet, it's said of them that should they compromise with wrong in this instance by yielding to the pressure of circumstances, their departure from principle would weaken their sense of right and their abhorrence of wrong. The first wrong step would lead to others until their connection with heaven severed, they would be swept away by temptation. And I've got to say that one of the, to me, one of the saddest uh, stories in Scripture in this regard has surely got to be King Solomon. What a disappointment. Of King Solomon, it was said this, Satan sought to bring in influences that would insidiously undermine Solomon's loyalty to principle and cause him to separate from God. You have your Bibles there. Please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, and we'll read a part of this sad story. It is, it is the most amazing thing to behold, that here was a man who had had sweet communion with God, who had had this lofty experience with God, was, was imparted the most amazing divine revelations and given the most deepest of revelations and wisdom. And yet we read here in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3, he says that he, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. And for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. How was Moloch appeased? Through human sacrifices and more particularly children's sacrifices, Solomon was sacrificing his own children to Moloch. Children that had been born of these foreign wives, many of them were sacrificed to Moloch. The depths of depravity that Solomon fell to, how deeper, how darker does it get than that? And here he is now caught up in the web 
of the devil's devisings. Inclination for Solomon gained ascendancy over reason and self-confidence increased. Now catch this, because the same thing that happened to David is now happening to Solomon. So gradual was Solomon's apostasy that before he was aware of it, he had wandered far from God. Almost imperceptibly, he began to trust less and less in divine guidance and blessing and to put confidence in his own strength. Little by little, he withheld from God that unswerving obedience, which was to make Israel a distinct people, and he conformed more and more closely to the customs of the surrounding nations. Solomon lost mastery of himself. His moral efficiency was gone. His fine sensibilities were blunted. His conscience was seared, and he mistook license for liberty. And he ended up trying to unite four things together, which was absolutely impossible to do. Solomon attempted to unite light with darkness, number one. He attempted to unite good with evil. He attempted, number three, to unite purity with impurity. And number four, he tried to unite Christ with Belial, another name for Satan. It wasn't going to happen. It was never going to happen. And Solomon fell victim to something to which we can all fall victim to. In fact, Solomon experienced one of the most dangerous things to spiritual life. What's one of the most dangerous things to spiritual life. Our prophet said that one of the most dangerous things to spiritual life is prosperity. Now you might say, you know what? I don't have a million bucks in the bank. That doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. Did you realize that just simply having a roof over your head and having a refrigerator under that roof, which for the most people means that there's also electricity coming to the house, to the, to, to the roof, guess what? You fall into, when you look at, at uh, across globally, globally I'm talking about, you fall into being one of the richest people on planet Earth just by having that. So are you prosperous? You better believe that you are. You are. And I want to thank you for Ollie and Charlotte this morning for helping me illustrate this point. But this is what inspiration tells us, and I quote, It is not the empty cup that we have difficulty in carrying. It is the cup full to the brim that must be carefully balanced. And Solomon fell prey to that, his wives, his horses, his everything else. And Solomon, finally, it wasn't a guarantee, but Solomon finally returned to the wisdom that God had revealed to him initially and at the time of the dedication of the temple. You see, Solomon had received two special intimate communications directly from God. 
And the second came just following the conclusion of the dedication of the temple that he had finally built and that his father, King David, had amassed all the building materials so that this temple could be erected. And Solomon finally came to, to understand a piece of wisdom that God had shared directly to him. Now, I know that Angela has, has, has been working on this verse. Angela, do you mind? Do you want to share that verse? I'll have the green microphone. And it comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins, sin and heal the land. Thank you. And that's exactly what Solomon did. I'm going to go back to the God of my youth. I'm going to repent of my sins. I'm going to turn from my wicked ways. God, is, God has promised to forgive and to heal. And Solomon experienced the mercy, the forgiveness, the sanctifying power of a very, very loving God. I want to share a picture with you on the screen. I want you to tell me what this event was and bonus points if you can tell me when it was. So I want to say it loud voice. A space shuttle. A space shuttle. Which one was it? Challenger. Bonus point for the date. I remember it because it came just a, a, a few minutes short of my birthday. January 28, 1986. For us, it was just clocking over to January 29. And at that time, I was uh, a young fella. I was... Uh, in Victoria Park at the time, come over from the east, come over to impress my future in-laws. And I tried to earn my keep by painting their house inside and out. And I remember at the time I'm standing, it's on the morning of my birthday, January 29, and I'm up there painting the gutter just outside the kitchen area. Radio's going on, news break comes in. Space shuttle challenger has exploded just shortly after liftoff. Well, for a person who's been following the space shuttle missions um, since its inception, since it first began its orbital flights, uh, test flights in 1981, and, and then onto its mission operative flights in 1982, I was devastated. To date, to that date, there had been 24 successful missions. And this was the 10th for Challenger. And in total, there would end up being 135 missions, the last taking place in 2011. And it was the space shuttle Endeavour that was built to take the place of Challenger that had been lost. And it was my privilege to see a night launch of the, uh, the Endeavour in Florida at Cape Kennedy a number of years ago. Well, following this tragic incident and this unmitigated disaster, the then president of the US at that time, Ronald Reagan, 
put in place a commission to determine what had gone wrong and how to prevent such a tragedy from ever occurring again. And it concluded that there was a problem with the solid rocket, rocket booster, which holds that the solid propellant. And for logistic as well as scientific reasons, they could not make that, that booster rocket as one continuous cylindrical sort of sleeve. It needed to be made in components. And we sort of understand even that concept today. You know, you look at concrete and you see all those little, like, little strips along the concrete. There's like expansion joints. So there needed to be, uh, you know, they needed to be able to ship and transport. There needed to be some, some degree of movement, subtle movement and flexibility. But the problem was with the very complicated structure that held those sections together. And right here we see a part of the complication where there's this, there's this tang that inserts into a clevis and you've got this system of O-rings and insulation and, and putty and all kinds of things. Very, very complicated joint. But there was a problem with that joint. And the fault exposed by the launch having taken place in weather conditions that were outside of the tested temperature ranges for the propulsion system, that was at fault. The, the takeoff was in very, very cold temperatures. Hadn't tested the propulsion system at that temperature. And as it turns out, NASA had repeatedly gone ahead with shuttle launches in spite of knowing that there was recurrent damage to the O-rings prior to launches. They knew that. Because at the end of every launch, they'd go out and they'd recover those solid rocket boosters after they fell back to Earth, and they would pull it all apart, and they would digest it, they would, and they would see that damage was happening to the O-rings. They were flying with known flaws, and every time they launched a shuttle, they accepted more risk with each launch. And friends, as I'm sharing this story, uh, this is not just simply a story. I want you to have your eye glance every now and then at Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11 because it's all going to start to come together, I hope. So they were getting away with it. So why change anything? And then as NASA middle managers were working, they recognized that they were being influenced by an organizational culture in which production concerns took priority over safety. And so this failure was not just simply a technical failure, it was an organizational failure of gigantic proportions. And so the behaviors of the managers, of the engineers, they became what is known as normalized. If things were fine with the first launch, it'll be fine with the second. If it's fine with the second, it's going to be good with the third, etc. And the more launches they had, the more they ignored or at least accepted defective components. And all this was reinforced by the fact that negative consequences did not occur with the acceptance of known flaws. A sociologist by the name of uh, Diana, Diane Vaughan studied this tragedy, tragedy and she gave this phenomenon a name. She called it normalization of deviation. How do these deviations from the ideal, how do these deviations from the norm 
become acceptable. How could you have a king of Israel doing such despicable things and the people look on as though this is fine, it's all good, and it's all very acceptable? How do you get to that point? How do these aberrant behaviours become normalised? And the answer is critically important. And the answer is also dangerously simple. They become normalised and accepted through repetition. This is no ordinary repetition. It's a repetition that is reinforced by the fact that negative consequences do not occur as a result of repeating that action. And more particularly, negative consequences that are not immediately apparent. And what NASA did was expand the boundaries of acceptable risk. They proved that Murphy's Law is not true. You've heard of Murphy's Law, haven't you? (laughs) Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. You've heard of that? No, no. Well, NASA actually proved the absolute opposite. They turned Murphy's Law on its head and shook it around. What NASA demonstrated was that everything that can go wrong usually goes right. And therein lies the problem. Launch after launch was successful. They were making poor choices and sloppy decisions and they were getting away with it. Win-win. But there is a reckoning and the piper was waiting to be paid. And that debt came due on January 28, 1986. Despite the tragedy of Challenger, NASA didn't really learn the lessons. Because just 17 years later, on the 113th mission, it was a different problem that was being ignored. And again, a preventable problem took out Columbia and its crew when it re-entered into the Earth's atmosphere and disintegrated after what otherwise was a very successful mission. And it was a loss, it was a tragedy that should never have happened. But guess what? NASA was still subject to the normalisation of deviation. And we too are subject to this same phenomenon. You know, this this whole normalization of deviation is nothing other than just simply a restatement of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. And I have, in fact, restated this. Then these are my words. Okay, you can pick on it, and that's all fine. But I've restated Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11 to say this. We will repeat those behaviors that are not penalized by immediate negative consequences. I mean, teachers know this all too well. For those of us of parents or parenting, we, we know this. A child will be less likely to repeat a behavior if sanctions are issued. We know that. Look at this statement here from uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. Human laws, though sometimes severe, are often transgressed without detection and hence with impunity. 
Now, that, that, that's a word that we don't sort of see too much these days. What does that mean? Impunity. Exemption from punishment or freedom from the injurious consequences of an action. So let's insert that definition back into that, into that statement. So we're going to put it where it says impunity. Human laws, though sometimes severe, are often transgressed without detection and hence with exemption from punishment or and hence with freedom from the injurious consequences of an action. You know, some of those consequences can be extrinsic. That is, they can be given to us. You know, a judge, someone hands down, a headmaster, a wife, a husband, or whoever says, this is the consequence for that behavior. But a lot of consequences are what I would refer to as intrinsic. That is, it's no one who's handed anything down. It's just simply a natural consequence that occurs as a result of our behavior. Here's an example. Exposure to violence in television, in movies, in video games, on cell phones, on the internet. And I'm here quoting the science behind it increases the risk of violent behavior on the viewer's part just as growing up in an environment filled with real violence increases the risk of them behaving violently. That is an intrinsic consequence. Friends, when we become complacent, it leads to something. We become complacent. We do something that ordinarily we wouldn't have done. And guess what? Seems like I got away with that. And then I become emboldened. I'll do it again. And again. Because I got away with it and I continue to get away with it. It was this way with Eve in the garden. Her complacency led her to, to, to leave Adam's side. She wandered over to check out that tree that God had spoken about. And when in this state of ease and security, she fell into sin. And then she became emboldened by her course of action because, hey, she did not appreciate any immediate negative consequences of her behavior, even though she, she had been told by God and Adam told by God, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Tell me, what's the only reason why Adam and Eve did not die at that instant? Because God stepped in. That's the only reason. You see that initial promise that which we won't turn to now. Have a read of it. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God steps into the gap that they had just created. That's the reason why they didn't die just like this. And then unfortunately, Eve becomes an ambassador. She becomes an evangelist for Satan. And she allures Satan 
that she allures Adam onto her territory. What is the relevance of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11 to you today? Think on this passage. Think how, how does it work in your life? Where, where is it relevant? Spiritual and, and non-spiritual things. Where is it relevant? Does anyone want to raise their hand with me and say, yes, I have read a text message while I was driving. Has anyone sent a text message when you're driving? Well, hold on a second. I got away with it. I got away with it then. The next time, the next time. I'm getting away with it. I'm getting away with it. You know, you can. You can get away with a lot. You can get away with eating those um, really unhealthful hamburgers. You can get away with the sugary drinks filled with high fructose corn syrup. Yep, you can get away with it. Get away with high blood sugar levels. You can get away with high cholesterol levels. You can get away with high blood pressure. Get away with those few extra kilos. You can get away with that online porn. You can get away with that dodgy business deal or that questionable tax return. I get away with it. Getting away with that sexual innuendo or flirtatious gesture. You can get away with our prayer. You can get away with our Bible study. You can get away with ignoring your children and their spiritual development. You can. But the day of reckoning comes. And we've got to give an account of our lives and of our choices. You know, I met just, uh, just yesterday a patient and I was going to prescribe for her a medication. I said to her, you cannot get pregnant, please, while on this medication. Because if you do, chances are, and the odds are stacked against you really bad, but chances are that you may end up with a severe birth defect in your fetus should, uh, should, you, should you get pregnant. Well, she walked into my room. She clearly recognized that you sort of can't really miss it with you know, my Christian paintings and everything on the walls. And she said to me, she said, you know what, you're, you're a Christian. She's, I never said anything. She said, you're obviously a Christian. And, and she said, I'll, I'll tell this to you. She said, um, that won't be a problem about the whole getting pregnant thing. She said, I, I cannot um, handle being on contraceptive devices and this and the other. It just doesn't well go. For, it doesn't sit well with my body. Can't do that. So we've just sort of go to go sort of natural um, sort of methods. She said, trust me, I'm not going to get pregnant. And I'll tell you the reason why. She says, uh, both my husband and I, um, she says, we have learned to practice self-control because she says, I'm a Christian too. She said, and we chose not to have premarital relationships before the day. I, I, I said nothing about all this. It was just her coming up. Sorry, premarital sex. Not, it has not been in our past. And she said, we'll manage this just fine. Don't worry about us. 
The day of reckoning is going to come. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and let's read the next verse, chapter, uh, chapter 8 and verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred days, and uh, here we go, grab my glasses. So, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God and fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And then he says, there's a vanity which occurs on earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. And again, there are wicked men to whom it, it, it happens according to the work of the righteous. And what Solomon is effectively saying is, and it's, a, it's, an, it's an age-old question that we all ask, tell me, why do good things seem to happen to bad, wicked people? Why, and conversely, why do bad things seem to happen to really good, upright people? Why does that happen? And then he says, verse 16, Then I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night. Then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Friends, we don't have an answer to those questions that he raised. We don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. And it may be across eternity that we start to get a glimpse of what that really means. What is the answer to our sin problem? One word, Jesus. Jesus, your creator. Jesus, your example. Jesus, your sacrifice. Jesus, your Redeemer. And as I've shared on this pulpit before, there was a time when I spent some time working um, every day with, uh, as, as I was a registrar working with plastic surgeons, we would get all kinds of trauma come in. Someone with an amputation, a half amputation, someone got angry, threw a, a fist at someone's someone's mouth, uh, their tooth cut into the person's joint space. Now, if we don't do something dramatic, they're going to end up with a septic joint. And I've seen it, you know, you, all of a sudden the joint is fused and immobile. Something's happened. We need to, we need to get someone into theatre. And they impressed upon me a statement which I've never forgotten. I said, Robert, the solution to pollution is dilution. In other words, you've got to wash, 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 get that sterile irrigation fluid and you wash and you wash and you wash and you wash. And just like when you think that you've finally got it all washed out, guess what? You've only just started. And I want you to wash and wash and irrigate and irrigate and wash and wash and, and then do some more. Now, I realize my analogy fails a little bit because I'm not so interested in, in a solution to my pollution that just simply dilutes a bit. God has a solution. The solution to, to, to the sin pollution is elimination, not dilution. In Ephesians chapter 5, if you've got your sword still with you, last couple of verses that I want to share with you. Ephesians chapter 5, and look at this, absolutely amazing verse. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. It says, Husbands, 
Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And that word is Jesus Christ. I came across a statement this week in, uh, in the book of James that, wow, what a powerful statement. Now, look, the number of times I've read this, and, but for whatever reason, this week it, it impacted me even more so. James chapter 1, verse 21, and this is what he says. And he refers to a, a word in, in the original Greek that occurs only once in the entire New Testament, and here it is. Ephesians, uh, James chapter 1, and verse 21. It says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the, and here's the word, the implanted word. What does your version say? Does it say engrafted? The engrafted word? The implanted word? God wants to have us so bonded and united with him that there is no difference between the rootstock and what's been grafted on. So much is that union the engrafting, the implanting, that there's no difference. Where did the word Christian come from? Came from the followers of Christ who the people just couldn't differentiate between Christ and the people. These were, these were, these were followers of Christ. They emulated Christ in every respect. You know, this is, if ever there was a time, which there probably wasn't, but this is, no time for a mamby-pamby relationship with God. He wants us all in. He wants us to have a living, real, vital relationship with him. Jesus wants to see us experiencing a life of constant victory with him. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for allowing your Son to come to this earth to do what he did for us in order that we might spend an eternity with you. Dear Father, I just pray that we will take this, this sorry felt lesson of King Solomon who wasted the best and brightest, best and brightest years of his life and gave them to the devil. But I'm also pleased that he came back to you and he penned these words of sorrow, of, of a reflection upon a life that could have been spent a little bit better. Dear Jesus, may we take these lessons to heart and that in our heart we can lift up our hands and say, Jesus, I'm all in. You've got me. You've got, you've got my best. You've got my best years. Dear Jesus, I just pray that we can stand before you unashamed when you return to this earth. And we can look you in the eye and say, Jesus, we've been waiting for you. Please take me home. Thank you and we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.
This message was made available by the Bunbury Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Bunbury SDA. Galkin Evangelistic Team sang More and More Like You. And coming up next, Ben Everson will sing Complete in Thee. Complete in Thee, no work of mine could take, dear Lord, the place of Thine. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and I shall stand complete in Thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me. 
and glorified I too shall be. Complete in thee, each want supplied, and no good thing to me denied. Since thou my portion, Lord, will be, I ask no more. Complete in thee, yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Complete in thee, no more shall sin, thy grace has conquered reign within. Thy blood shall bid the tempter flee, and I shall stand complete in thee. Justified, O blessed blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Dear Savior, when before thy bar all tribes and tongues assembled are among the children. Shall be at thy right hand, complete in thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me. for Kids with Uncle Gordon, where you will hear first-hand accounts of answers to prayer and miracles from God. Oh, by the way, I think adults will like this too. Hi, boys and girls. It's lovely to be able to share another story with you. Uncle Gordon here again today. When I was working and living in the Solomon Islands, part of my role was to keep an interest in and to show support for a hospital that our mission ran on Malaita Island. The hospital was called Atawifi. Living up in the mountains beyond Atawifi were a number of villages of people who were still heathen. They, they were anti-God. They didn't want to know about God, but they were happy if they were sick to come to hospital to have some treatments that, that they knew God was part of. But sometimes some of them were pretty greedy. And this particular day, one of these bushmen came into the compound of the hospital and he began to yell and to scream, I want some money, I want some money. One of these coconut trees on this property is worth a lot of money and it belongs to an uncle of mine and I need some money for it. Somebody give me some money or I'm going to kill somebody. With his shouting and screaming, 
everybody got very nervous and everybody quickly shut themselves into their houses or their offices or their rooms where they were and locked the doors because he was carrying a great big bush knife with a great big long sharp blade but he also had his bow and his arrows with him because they were pretty good at shooting arrows some of these wild bushmen he said I want some money and so he sat there and he said, I'm not going to move here till somebody gets me some money. And nobody was, nobody was willing to come out and talk to him. But the very next thing, I was down listening to the radio back in Honiara and I had a plea come over the radio, Pastor, can you please come and meet this man? Can you please come and sort out the issue with him? We're a little bit frightened at the moment. We don't want to go out there in case he's so angry, in case he just hits us with his knife or he shoots an arrow into us. Can you come over? And I thought to myself, that's very kind of you to invite me to come over. Um, how can I deal with this when you're there on the spot? I said, well... You know, I've just got to get a plane to, to organise to come over and uh, it'll be a little while, so I'll probably see you within the hour. And so I quickly organised a plane to, to take me over, a little mission plane that was available sitting on our tarmac where near where I was. But then I thought, what do I do? How do I deal with a wild man like this? What's their language that he uses? Does he speak pidgin English that I can use or does he speak just a local dialect? What does he do? How do I deal with this kind of situation? So I rang a man who, who came from that area who was a Christian and he was now one of the politicians. And I said, John, this is the issue over at Artawifi. Are you willing to come with me to go and talk to this man? He said, yes, pastor, I will come with you. I said, what do we do? He said, let's buy some rice. And so he went down to the store and I bought a big bag of rice. And uh, we put that on the plane when we went out to the airstrip and we flew over. Nobody could come down to meet us as they normally did where they would come down with a tractor and a trailer and we'd get a ride up the little rough track up from the airstrip to the hospital. We just landed and the pilot waited there and he said, I'll stay here, I'm not going up there. And the two of us began to walk up, sharing the big bag of rice between us from time to time. Eventually we came over the brow of the hill and could see the hospital compound, the grass and this man sitting on the, on the compound. And uh, nobody else around, everything else shut up, everybody else behind their locked doors. Both of us sang out to him, hello friend, hello. And he rang out, he sang out hello and he called him a one talk. That was a, somebody who was of the same family, the same tribe. He wasn't really, but they lived near each other. One was from the coast, one was from up in the mountains. And this man jumped up and he had his spears in his hand and he had his bow and, he, and his arrows and he had his bush knife. He had a lot of weapons there. And we just came towards him and said, look, we're here in peace. Let's sit down together. And we sat down where we were, thinking we hope he takes the lead. And he came and sat down beside us. All the time, John and I were praying, God, you be keeping us safe here. You keep control of this situation. Keep him calm. Give us the right words to say. Help us to be able to do that which you just put the words in our minds, please, and on our tongues so that we can sort out this man. And so we were uh, sat there and, and while he relaxed and got his, put all his weapons all down beside him, ready to use them if he had to in a hurry, we had this bag of rice and we just lifted it up and put it towards him and said, we appreciate very much your interest in this hospital. 
we just want to give you a little token of appreciation, a little sign that we, that we love you, we care about you, and we're sorry that something's been upsetting you. Will you accept our bag of rice? And the man looked at that and he reached out with both hands now and he took the bag of rice and, and all of a sudden we could see his tension just melting away. And he relaxed and we began to talk about his family. We began to talk about the man who had owned the tree that was growing on the property. And we just thanked him so much. We said, this is all, a lot of this is voluntary. We don't have a lot of income to be able to have money to give to, to people because a lot of the people who work here are receiving very little wages. So we don't have money to give you, but we just want to thank you so much for your generosity and allowing us to get coconuts off this tree. And you're welcome to get coconuts off it yourself anytime because we recognize it is yours. And eventually this man, he said, oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to me as he told all the story about his family and his connections and, and his need for a bit of money at the time. And we couldn't give him money. But it was lovely to see this man eventually reach out and shake our hands and then walk away back up into the mountains, relaxed and at peace. And we believe because God had calmed him down. We believe because God had given us just the right words, the right questions to ask, and his atmosphere had been there to keep everything under control. Arawifi again became at peace, as it nearly always was except when people like this came in and caused all sorts of troubles. You know, boys and girls, sometimes we're not at peace. And often we need to just talk to God about what's going on inside us or what's happening in our family or what's happening in our school or what's happening down the street. Sometimes we're not too sure how to deal with it, what to say or, or if we should say anything at all. May I encourage you to, to in those circumstances, just keep talking to God asking him for what to say, what to think, how to think, and that his atmosphere might flow through you and that your presence might be experienced by others, that you might be a channel for God to influence positively for good somebody else around you. God bless you, boys and girls, as you keep your hand in God's and keep your mind in touch with him. to Mission Stories for Kids with Uncle Gordon, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.